I am super excited about this message this morning. Last week, as we talked about the law, it was a little tough, it was a little rough. I had to move through that and experience the conviction of the law all last week. Y'all just had to do it on Sunday, I think. But uh, this, this Sunday is not quite as tough, but it is equally as good in the story of God. So today we're going to look at the story called Tabernacle. And it's a story about how God dwells in the midst of his people and establishes a sacrificial system to take away the sins of his people. And this story is found in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and it'd be really hard for you to keep up with me this morning. So if you want to try, go ahead. If you can't do it, that's okay. But if you want a starting place, start at Exodus 25. So if you want to open up a Bible app or your Bible or in your blue Bible um, in your rows, there is um, a blue Bible there. Exodus 25 in your blue Bible is on page 65, Exodus 25. So what we know from last week is that God gives the law. He gives the law for a purpose, and the purpose of the law is to help his people know how to live in a right relationship with him and with one another. And so the law um, helps people know what God's standard is. It helps them clearly understand what it means to be good in God's eyes. The problem with the law is that it convicts people of their sins, but the law doesn't have the power to forgive people of their sins. It's, It's God's top ten list of how to be good in his eyes, but... It doesn't actually take away our sin and make us good in his eyes. So the law is good in and of itself, but none of us have the power or the ability to live up to the righteous requirements that are demanded in the law. And so what God does is he shows grace. And he establishes a sacrificial system of worship so that people convicted by their sin don't have to remain in their sin, that their sin can be forgiven. This is an incredible thread throughout the story of God. We see it back in the beginning um, in Genesis chapter 3, that God, 1, 2, and 3, that God makes it very clear his expectations, his desire, his design for his people. And even when people fall short of that expectation and have an independent spirit and rebel and sin against God, God still shows grace. He pursues them with his love, and he provides a way to cover their sin. And that thread goes all the way through God's story, and God's picking it up again here in Exodus 25, in this moment in God's story where God's people are with him in the desert. They've just come out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, and God creates a sacrificial system of worship to forgive their sin. Now, On one of his trips up to the mountain, God gives Moses some special instructions. He says in Exodus 25, beginning at verse 8, Have my people make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell with them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern. The pattern I will show you. Okay, the word tabernacle means dwelling place. It's a special place where God is going to meet with his people and his people are going to worship him. 
And so the tabernacle in and of itself is a picture of God's plan to deal with sin. And so are the furnishings. God's very specific about the furniture of the tabernacle, all which signify who God is and how his people are to be in relationship with him, how his people are to worship him. These furnishings are really important to the worship of God. And so what Moses does is he gathers his very best craftsmen and his very best workers, and they begin to build a tabernacle right in the center of the camp. Now, this is an all-in effort. This is everybody. Everybody is involved in building the tabernacle. Everybody is involved. Everybody who uh, is, is in the camp of the Israelites takes whatever skill they have, whatever gifts they have, whatever treasures they have, and remember they have a lot because they're coming out of Egypt and they got to keep it all, and they are bringing that um, to Moses and to the leaders and everybody is participating in building this tabernacle where they are going to worship God in his very presence and have a way that their sins can be forgiven so that they can do so. So it's a totally community effort. It's such a cool part of God's story. I wish, I wish we had the time to go into all the different details, but we're going we're gonna to move forward. In fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to go on a tabernacle tour. If you're not quite awake yet, say tabernacle tour 10 times fast, and it'll start to wake you up a little bit, okay? But um, I want to use this as a, it's kind of our flyer. It's kind of our flyer, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to do an HGTV overview of the main parts of the tabernacle and its furnishings, okay? Anybody remember the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Okay, if, if this were Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Robin Leach would say, it's the most amazing house in all of history, and I don't know why. Okay, for some of you who don't remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, but you do watch MTV Cribs, this, this would be Yahweh's house, right? Hi, I'm Yahweh. Welcome to my crib. Don't touch anything or you're going to die. So let's, let's take a tour um, of the tabernacle here, God's dwelling place and all of its furnishings. So as um, we approach the tabernacle, we're going to head to the entrance, the gate, okay? This gate is the only way into the tabernacle. And once you go through this gate, the only way into the presence of God, you come into a courtyard, and it's really, really large. And here, everyone is welcome. Now, as we go through the gate, the very first thing that we see is a brazen altar. And this is where the sacrifices are offered. So the purpose is to have God's um, people come in and make a sacrifice for their sin so that their sins are removed and they can be in his presence. Remember, sin leads to death and separation from God, but God loves his people so much that he provides a way to pay for their sins so that they can experience his presence. What's the opposite of death? Okay, making sure you're still here. Um, and so God, flip over to Leviticus, God in Leviticus chapter 1 says this, 
If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Fascinating. What God is doing is he's saying the animal is going to be a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the people. He goes on in Leviticus 17 to say, the life of each creature is in the blood. So I have given you the blood of animals to pay for your sin on the altar. Blood is life. That is why blood pays for your sin. So near the bronze altar is um, a bronze water basin. It's a basin filled with water used for ceremonial washing. So before a priest can do anything important, he first must wash his hands in the basin. And that washing signifies the need to be pure before we can approach a holy God. It's a reminder that we are impure and unclean in our sin, and we need to be washed and made pure and clean before we can come into God's presence. Okay, so you walk through the gate, and the first thing you see is the brazen altar, and then the next thing you see is the water basin. Now, as you continue to move forward through the courtyard, the next thing you're going to see is a holy hut. It's called the holy place, and it's a large room toward the rear of the courtyard that's made from a bunch of animal skins. It's the holy place. It's the heart of the tabernacle. And it's inside this holy place that we find some more very significant furnishings. Furnishings that are going to help us understand who God is and who he created us to be and how sin separates us from God and corrupts our God-given identity. But these furnishings signify how God pursues us with his love and how we can worship him as a part of a sacrificial way that he would take away our sins. So as we walk into the holy place, the holy hut, on the left-hand side, uh, there is a lampstand, a seven-branched lampstand. Exodus 25 tells us that this lampstand or menorah has a central branch with three stems on each side. And all seven stems of this lampstand have a cup with olive oil and a wick and it's burning. Now, this is not the little menorah sitting in the window of someone's house, right? This is a big, huge, significant gold lampstand that's coming up off the floor with all of those uh, lamps lit, providing all the light in this holy place that otherwise would be very dark. And on the right-hand side of the holy place, opposite the lampstand, is the table of showbread, and on it are 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And what happens is that every day people from their um, life and labor, they come and they bring grain and the bakers make these 12 loaves of bread, also called the bread of presence. And the priests take that bread into the holy place, put it on the table of showbread, and it is an act of praise, an act of worship and thanksgiving, acknowledging that everything God's people have comes from God, and back to God, people give an offering of their life and labor. It's also a reminder that God is the one who provides for all the needs of his people. And interestingly, toward the end of the day, the priest would take those 12 loaves and they would break it up and they would eat it as an act of worship in remembrance that God cares and provides for his people. So you have the table of bread, you have the lampstand, and the third furnishing in the holy place as you begin to walk toward the back is the altar of incense. And, and here, specially made, sweet-smelling incense burns as a fragrant offering to God. It's where the prayers of the high priest um, are lifted up to the presence of God, signifying how God loves to hear the prayers of his people and answer in accordance to his glory and his purposes. So in this holy place, you have the lampstand, you have the table of the bread of presence, you have the altar of incense, and as you go further back, there is another room, a final room. And this room is called the Holy of Holies. And the way that this room is made is that it is sectioned off by a, a really large and extremely thick curtain. And it divides the Holy of Holies from the most holy place. And, and, and that curtain, that veil, reminds God's people that God is holy and that he has to remain separate and apart from his people who are sinful. And so this curtain, this veil acts to shield sinful man from a holy God. But on the other side of that curtain, that veil, is the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a very special wooden box that's overlaid with gold. And inside that wooden box, there are three significant things. Three significant things that, again, help people remember who God is and who they are and what it looks like to live in grateful response to Him. So inside the Ark of the Covenant are three significant items. You remember what they are? Tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them, representing how God's people are to live in relationship with Him and with one another. And a jar of supernaturally preserved manna, symbolizing God's constant provision for His people anytime, any place, anywhere, under any circumstance. And finally, the one that sometimes is harder to remember. Do you, do you know what it is? It's the rod of Aaron. You remember the story of the rod of Aaron that actually buds? 
And so the rod of Aaron signifies that God has the power to bring the dead back to life. And so those three symbols are in the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is what is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat represents God's throne and his presence among his people on earth. And so when the high priest comes in and sprinkles the blood of the sacrificial lamb upon the mercy seat, God looks down from heaven and accepts the sacrifice made by the people. And so rather than judging his people, God shows mercy because of the blood. Now, finally, is the cloud of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. The very presence of God that hovers over the tabernacle, way up in the air. I don't know how high, but we do know that you could see it from miles away. And as the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire hovers over the tabernacle, it hovers directly over the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, representing God's throne and his presence among his people. And whenever the cloud or pillar moves, the people pack up their camp and they follow. I want to drill down a little bit on this place where God dwells and invites people to make sacrifices that he might forgive their sin, and allow them to enjoy his presence. I want to talk about a word that God uses throughout his story. It's an important word called atonement. And the best way that I've ever remembered what atonement means is to understand it as at one meant. So ever since the beginning, God's desire is to create a place where he is going to dwell with his people. And so remember back at the beginning of the story in September that God creates a place before he creates a people. He creates a special place for his people to dwell with him and with one another. Like God begins his story by creating the heavens and the earth as his tabernacle. And God creates that spot and then creates us in his image and likeness that we might enjoy his presence. And he walks among us in the garden, the original tabernacle. And so God's heart and a thread throughout his entire story and his entire relationship with his people is that he wants to be at one with us. Just like he is at one with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he wants us to be at one with him and with one another. And so God chooses Aaron and his sons to represent this desire of God um, as an Aaronic priesthood. And so the priests have a special job of bringing the people's offerings and sacrifices And no one but the high priest can enter into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest can only enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year. Do you remember what the day is called? The day of at-one-ment, atonement. The Hebrew word for day say yom. And the Hebrew word for atone is kippur. The day of atonement is yom kippur. 
And so before the high priest can enter in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he has to wash himself, put on special clothing, and bring burning incense with him so that his whole body is surrounded by smoke that he cannot get a direct view. He cannot see the presence of God clearly. And then he ties a rope around his ankle. Just in case being in the presence of God should strike him down, the other priests outside the Holy of Holies would drag him back out so that they wouldn't have to go back in and get struck down themselves. What is happening here is God's people are taking very seriously their respect, their honor, their reverence of a holy God. And in Leviticus 16, God says, This day of atonement will be a special day where you will all be made right with me. And this day you will find forgiveness and cleansing from your sins. Isn't that beautiful? You see what God's doing? Okay, I want, I, want to, I want to take this one level deeper. You want to go with me? Just one more level? Okay, two goats. Goat one and goat two. Goat one, God tells Aaron, find two spotless goats and sacrifice one of them as a substitute for the sins of all the Israelites. Take its blood and sprinkle it on the cover in front of the ark, the mercy seat, as you did before, I will accept this and forgive all the sins and rebellion of the people. Remember, blood represents life, and in this blood you will find life and atonement for your sins. Goat one. Goat two. After this, Aaron was to bring in the other goat that was still alive called a scapegoat. This is where we get the word scapegoat. And God told him, lay both of your hands on its head and confess all the people's sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and then lead this goat far away into the wilderness, and the people's sins will be taken away with it, never to be seen again. So what God is doing in the tabernacle with the sacrificial system of worship is he is providing a way not only for the sins of his people to be covered, but also a way for the sins of his people to be removed and remembered no more. And so Aaron and the people followed God's instructions really carefully. And because of this, the people were made right with God and given atonement for their sins one day a year. And that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, became a holy day that the people of Israel celebrated Year after year after year after year. However, these sacrifices only signify what is to come. God was preparing a final sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice that would pay the penalty of sin once and for all. The sacrificial system established by God around the tabernacle sets the stage for the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice God provides for the atonement, for an atonement for the sins of the world. 
So the first reason God establishes the tabernacle is to dwell in the midst of his people. The second reason that God establishes a tabernacle in the sacrificial system is to prepare his people to know, recognize, and desire Messiah. So the tabernacle is a temporary solution for sin. Jesus will be the permanent solution for sin. And what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to actually go back through the tabernacle together. We might take an HGTV tour one more time and go back through the tabernacle and see what God is up to, preparing a place not only for his dwelling, but with furnishings that actually point to the promise of the coming of the Messiah. You want to do that? This is, this is, y'all, this is so cool. I, I can't, I, like, I'm having so much fun with this this week. This is amazing. The gospel is so good. God is so amazing. I mean, he's got this all figured out. He's got it all worked out, and he loves us so much that he, he lets us in on it. All right. The tabernacle itself is a picture of Christ. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. He made his dwelling among us. And the way that God dwells among us is in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who was with God in the beginning. The one through which everything was made. The one who holds everything Together, Jesus is tabernacle. He is the very presence of God. The word dwelling means to pitch a tabernacle. It's like God came down and pitched that 12-person REI habitat tent. Like that's, that's Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom. He fulfills the law and the prophets. He comes to dwell with his people, Israel. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The salvation God prepared for all the world to see. A light to enlighten the nations and the glory of his people Israel. The gate is a picture of Christ. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he says the time has come, the kingdom of God is near the kingdom of God is near because I am here. So experience the presence of God. Repent and believe the good news. The invitation to come into the presence of God is to leave all else behind, repentance, and to put our whole trust in Jesus, faith. And time and time again throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus says things like, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. You don't have to strive after me anymore. I'm coming to you. He says, I am the gate. And whoever enters through me will be saved. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes into the presence of God except through me. In Christ, the gate the entrance into the presence of God and the full experience of the kingdom of God is wide open to everyone who will come. And as we enter in through Jesus, the gate, 
we also see that the brazen altar is a picture of Christ. Jesus is God's unblemished sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. So that means that in him, our sins are paid in full. No more sacrifices are ever needed again. And all of our sin is not only forgiven, it's taken away and remembered no more. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we may be right, that we may become the righteousness of God. This is such beautiful news. Listen to Hebrews 10, written to the Jews to help them understand how Jesus is Messiah and how the tabernacle and its furniture points to Jesus. <coughs> the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for the sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. His cross became the altar. The altar became the cross. Going a little further, the water basin is a picture of Christ who promises the Holy Spirit who will come and like living water wash away our sins. It's a picture of, of baptism which signifies being buried with Christ in his death and raised with him and his resurrection. Being uh, dipped and washed and cleaned and raised up as pure and holy and without blemish. Blemish. Titus 3 says it this way. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And that means every time we acknowledge and confess our sin to God and to one another, we renew our baptism. And God is not only quick to forgive us our sin, he also purifies us from all unrighteousness. So you walk through the gate, you see the altar, you see the water basin, all signifying the Messiah who is to come. And then, a little further back, remember, you have the most holy place. And the furnishings in that place also point to Jesus. The lampstand is a picture of Christ who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And then in his sermon on the mountainside, Jesus says, you, you are the light of the world. So let your light 
shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. His light burns within us that his life might shine through us for others to come out of the darkness and into the light. And there next to the lampstand, the bread of presence is also a picture of Christ who declares, I am the manna that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not go hungry. And in that most holy place next to the table of the bread of presence, next to um, the lampstand is the what? Altar of incense, another picture of Christ, reminding us that as followers of him, our prayers are sweet-smelling incense to the Lord, and that he is our great high priest who has ascended and been seated at the right hand of the Father and who ceaselessly makes intercession on our behalf. And Paul takes it a step further in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he reminds us that Christ uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. It says that we are to God a pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So yeah, it's good to smell good, but God desires us to smell like Jesus. And further along there in the Holy of Holies, we have a picture of Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, a beautiful declaration of the good news, who is Jesus Christ. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, Christ entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from sins and sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That thing's thick. It would not have been an easy thing to do. God does a supernatural work splitting that, temp that curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place in two, signifying that because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, one time for everyone, there is direct access to God forever. Now, again, it gets, it gets even better. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, okay, that all of us together are now the holy place. We, the church, the people of God, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives within us, making us holy and sacred as the church, the dwelling place of the presence of God, how through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and gives life to our mortal bodies that we may no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and rose again for us. Now, there's one more thing that is really amazing about this. 
And that is, is that is going back to the idea of the tabernacle, the original tabernacle that God tells Moses to replicate. You remember what God says to Moses, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among you and make this tabernacle and it's all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, hang with me here. What's a pattern? A pattern makes it possible to replicate something that already exists. And what that means is that the tabernacle, what God is doing already exists. It's been around long before Exodus 25. It exists in heaven. And what God is doing in order to dwell with his people is he is taking a pattern, a replica of what it looks like to be in his presence in heaven for all of eternity. And he's putting that together in some blueprints for Moses to replicate and imitate on earth. And so just as the garden represents the presence of God among his people, now the tabernacle is representing God's presence among his people. And what it does is it points to what it will be like for us to be in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. And we begin to see this clearly in God's revelation to John in Revelation chapter 21, where John says that, In this revelation, he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And then, listen to this, y'all. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's tabernacle. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell, he will pitch his tent with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's heaven. God is up to something throughout his story. He wants a place to dwell with his people, and he will not stop. He will not give up. He will never cease to pursue us and provide a gracious way for us to be in his presence. And it all culminates in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. By his death and through his resurrection, we have eternal life with him forever. We get to tabernacle with him. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that give you this sense of joy and expectation of where we're going? That this life is not our home? That we have a much better place that Jesus has promised that he has prepared for us to enjoy for eternity. Now, I'm just thinking, on the day of his resurrection, when Jesus comes alongside those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says that he opened their minds to all of the law and the prophets and explained to them how it concerned him, how, how everything in the scriptures points to Jesus. I'm wondering, you think Jesus in that conversation along that road might have walked those disciples through the tabernacle. 
wouldn't that have been cool to have been there? But what's even cooler is to know that he's here with us. And even cooler than that, that we're going to be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and, and, and just are amazed at your goodness and your love and your beauty. And God, we, um, we pray now that as we come to you, as we draw near to you around the table this morning, that you would draw near to us. Lord, that we might know you more fully, that we might experience more deeply the goodness of your love and your kindness towards us and all the promises that you have so richly bestowed upon us in your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to dwell among us, to die in our place as an atonement for our sin, that we might be restored to a forever right relationship with you, Father. Thank you for your son. And so as, as we come to him through the bread and the wine, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us once again? Would you fill us? Would you cleanse us? Would you nourish our heart and mind and soul as we feed on Christ the bread of life? And by your spirit, would you make our lives a fragrant offering of praise for your glory and honor, Father? We pray in Jesus' name and for his faith. Amen.